Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Jonathan Oliver. Hi. I'm uh, So I'm just looking at some of the emails here, and one of the emails that was received was from a listener, and they asked the question about Joseph crossing over the river uh, with Nauvoo and the martyrdom, and it talks. he asked the question about how Joseph had some kind of understanding about coming back from Montrose, uh, Illinois, across, or excuse me, Montrose, Iowa. Yeah. Iowa. I should know. I should. I know geography. I promise. <laughs> I promise. I know geography. There's a lot of yeah. Montrose. Okay, they're Illinois, all over yeah, the country. There we go. Yes, yeah, Montrose. Yeah, so. Montrose, Iowa. My wife's from Iowa, so there's a. I, that's an, another thing. Anyway, so we got to so, keep your wife from listening yeah, just, to this podcast. We'll just somehow. edit this yeah. little portion okay. out, yeah. right? She won't wink, hear wink, this. Nod, nod. Yeah. Uh, any, in any case, Montrose, Iowa, with Hiram and Porter Rockwell. So he's over there and. He had some kind of understanding that if he returned to Nauvoo, that he would be killed. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have seen that there are letters where Joseph understood this, that he had a short time to live, even a few years before the actual event. My question is, do we know what the issue was with the with the people, specifically the those that formed the council, They hoped to have, why they hoped to have uh, Joseph back? Um, and so was it fears of financial loss, possible further destruction of property or seizures, um, that's what I'm thinking, but just not seeing any good documentation. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Obviously, uh, this listener is following up on our our uh, our podcast on the martyrdom, the the multiple podcasts we had on the martyrdom, because uh, and they're describing the question they're asking is you know Joseph leaves, he crosses the river, and the plan is to flee because Joseph really does see his life as being in danger. In fact, he writes that to Governor Ford, we dare not come. You know, you, you can pledge your, you know, willingness to defend us all you want, but, you know, the, the talk in the papers is we are going to exterminate them. Well, that, that doesn't give anyone a whole lot of confidence. And so I, I, for Joseph, he certainly believes his life is in danger. Certainly people have threatened his life. And even, even if it's just simply a he gets extradited to Missouri. Missouri has essentially promised that if they get a hold of him, they're going to execute him. So uh, there, there's, it's a very rational thing for Joseph to fear for his life. And, and he gets away. He crosses the river. He's in Iowa territory. Iowa is not yet a state yet. And so it's a federal territory that is administered through uh, the federal government rather than a state government, meaning... Um, it was, so it's basically the same today, right? Yeah, yeah right. Is that, yeah, yeah. The federal government really, yeah. really, it, it really the, is in charge of Iowa. The federal government's yeah. in charge of Iowa. Um, so because of that, it it, it was going to be harder to get him. I mean, you'd have to then go through federal marshals if you wanted to be able to get Joseph back once he got there. And, and really the plan seemed to be, I am going to flee all the way to the Rocky Mountains, which, is, which would be Mexico at the time. So what we talked about was that even though Joseph was already safely away, he comes back. Why does he come back? Well, there is a series of letters that are sent to him by various concerned citizens in Nauvoo telling him to come back. And, and one of them's written by Emma. I mean, Emma herself actually uh, asked Joseph to come back. They seem to fear, uh, and again, what are their fears? Well, look, the army, they know the army's on the march that, 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 Governor Ford is bringing an army to Illinois, I mean, to Nauvoo, Illinois, to, to arrest Joseph and to make sure there aren't any more disturbances, things like that. And I should, I should ask like for clarification, like an actual army, state militia. Yeah. The, no. the only army Ford has access to, which is state militia. Right. So as a governor in, 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 I mean, our national guard is like a, it's, it's kind of a carryover from the old state militia days where governors have the ability to call out their own National Guard, um, but presidents have the ability to mobilize the National Guard as well. So there's kind of this kind of federalism, much more pronounced back then. Back then, the federal army is incredibly small, and most military service is actually at the state level. And in, the, in the war that's going to be fought against Mexico, um, when that war breaks out, 
there are roughly six to 8,000 full-time members of the American military. And so the more than 100,000 men that will go fight in the Mexican War um, are nearly all volunteers, and most of them coming from the ranks of state militias that are that were raised before. At any rate, um, the, these people are all operating under the experiences that they've had. Many of the people in Nauvoo were there in Missouri only a few years earlier. It, it's, it's only five years earlier that this horrific uh, instance happened in Missouri when Joseph was arrested, when there was the Missouri State Militia marching on Far West. And after Joseph was taken into custody, all mayhem broke loose. Not only is there the Hans Mill massacre that, that took place just before, but the residents of Far West are robbed, assaulted, murdered, uh, their, their properties taken from them. The, the state militia essentially goes wild on, on the, the Mormons living there. And so their shared psychological experience is one of when a governor marches to your Latter-day Saint city with a military force that the, that military force is going to enact violence because that's what they all experienced. And so when, when Joseph leaves, many of the residents of Nauvoo, and, you know, in point of fact to your question, several of the people who are most prominent in telling Joseph to come back happen to be some of the business leaders in Nauvoo, some of the more wealthy people in Nauvoo. Um, and I would guess that's exactly the reason why. They have a lot to lose. They know exactly what happened in Far West. And maybe they're only just concerned for their own families. I mean, I don't want to make it a, a wholly selfish thing, but the reality is their shared history is even when Joseph was arrested last time, the militia tore apart uh, Latter-day Saint property. To, to put this in a modern context, I'm just thinking of, you know, 2008, 2009, we had the quote-unquote Great Recession. And then now fast forward to 2020, all of a sudden COVID, okay, and everything's shutting down via government mandates. And the question was, is this essentially a repeat of the, the Great Recession? And so yeah. uh, auto manufacturers, in fact, massive cancellations on all their parts and things like that to the point where it's it's actually creating a lot of supply chain issues now where it's like all the, the manufacturers were like revving down their production right. and so forth. So so in other words, we do this y as yeah. humans. Yeah, we it's, do this. it's a natural thing to operate on the basis of what happened last. You know, people always say in, in, in history, it, you know, you always fight the last war. That's the, that's the, the mantra among military history is that, you know, it, it, you, the last war is the war that was so, uh, it was so imprinted upon your memory that of course that's the one that you took all your tactics from and you, t and, and you learned all your mistakes from. Well, the problem is the next war is a different war in a different place. In the Gulf War, they uh, the 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 military troops went in with the the like camouflage from Vietnam. I remember that, and when then they, they had to like in. get some like right. different. Oh, camouflage. we need something that looks like the desert. <laughs> yeah, not like camouflage that would help yeah. us in Vietnam. And then we get that you know the the desert type of fatigue. So uh, yeah, so that that's a good example that many people going into um, the, uh, the this recent economic uh, uh, you know uncertainty their greatest memory was the 2008-2009 recession. And so for Latter-day Saints living in Nauvoo, the last time a governor marched to the church headquarters with a state militia, people were murdered. Businesses were destroyed, buildings were burned down, and there was no repercussions at all for any of the things that those uh, Missouri militiamen did. None of them were charged. None of them were executed for the murders or the sexual assaults that they committed. No, there, there was no, there was no uh, uh, holding anyone to account. And so I think that they think if the governor gets here with his troops and occupies Nauvoo and there isn't a Joseph Smith to arrest and take away for trial. Well, then the troops are just going to stay here. And if the troops stay here, we already know what will happen when the troops stay here. 
because we've already experienced that. They are going to kill us. They are going to rob us. They are going to, to harm us in, in all kinds of ways. Now, I think as a, you know, when you look back on history, it's easy to say, well, I think they were overreacting. That, that isn't what happened, which is a very easy thing to say when it's not your house being burned down and not your, you know, your, your family being threatened with their lives. Their experience was that this was a very real threat. And in point of fact, when the governor did come to Nauvoo, even after Joseph did surrender himself, he, by multiple accounts, proceeded to harangue the Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo and told them that all of the disturbances were all their fault. Everything was their fault. The fact that people were persecuting you was your fault. The reason why people hate you is your fault. It wasn't exactly a positive message. So it's one of those things of history that we don't really know. What would those troops have done had Joseph already been gone? I don't really know. But the fear that those business owners and prominent members of, of the church in Nauvoo had was enough that they urge Emma to, to write to Joseph to tell him to come back, and, and Joseph does. So um, there are some documents surrounding that um, on the Joseph Smith Papers uh, website that you could examine, um, but you also get a lot of reminiscent history talking about that, people looking back on that. As you might imagine, some of those people who are really urging Joseph to come back kind of get seen as, uh, you know, they, they're blamed for Joseph's death in the years that follow. So the challenge with the reminiscent history, of course, is like, you know, you know, here's something happening 40 years ago, and then good luck remembering the, the particulars, right? So, yeah. so then is it is it that you find that the reminiscence is like repeated by, you know, four, five, six, seven individuals, and that's what allows you to put the picture together? Depending on what we're talking about, in this case, we have some actual documents from the time period. And then usually what you get from reminiscent accounts that you don't get from the actual documents is you get context surrounding it and a narrative, right? So if I have a letter to Joseph that says, you know, um, I'm willing to sell you that farm. Well, that's, that's nice, but it's, it's relatively meaningless to anyone reading it. I don't know what farm you're talking about. I don't know where you're talking about. And it might be that I find in a reminiscent account of someone looking back, oh, yes, I remember when I sold Joseph Smith my farm that was just outside of Nauvoo. And then suddenly I have a context. Now, the problem with a reminiscent account is that context and that narrative is colored by history. It's very easy for people after the fact that Joseph was murdered to look back and say, I should have known he was going to be murdered. I should have seen this coming because that's actually what happened. And again, talking about what we all do, we all do this. Yeah, you, buy, you buy a house in 2007 for sky-high prices. And yeah, and you're like, why didn't I know? 2009, <laughs> like, how can I get out of that, uh, from underneath this house? We, why didn't we, I know, we should have known if I only knew? Yeah, and, and I think that we're all like that. It's a, it's a natural thing to, to kind of look back and see what were the clues that would have kept me from, from doing this thing or making this mistake. At any rate, I, I appreciate the question. I, I think really they are driven by fear and it seems to be a legitimate fear. In the case of the business owners, at least Brigham Young seems to think that it's motivated more by money than it is by, uh, you know, a, a fear for their own personal welfare. But regardless of the reason why, whether they're afraid for financial losses, whether they're afraid for their families' lives, they really do genuinely seem to be afraid that if the governor arrives with his troops and Joseph isn't there, well, then it's time to, to start slashing and burning, basically. So um, thank you for that. I want to move on to uh, uh, our our main topic for the day, and that is surrounding the revelations of Joseph Smith generally, and especially the Doctrine and Covenants. Frankly, we probably should have had this uh, podcast a while ago since we've been studying the, po- the Doctrine and Covenants all year, uh, so this will be less helpful for you, but you know, hold on to the podcast. and Just, just wait four years. Yeah, yeah, four years from now, four years from now, this is going to be very helpful to you. Um but I want to kind of talk about what makes a revelation, how, how, what revelations were selected to go into the Doctrine and Covenants. Are there revelations that aren't in the Doctrine and Covenants? What types of things become sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, and how does that change over time? A question I often get asked is, do you think the church will ever add any sections to the Doctrine and Covenants? That's not a question that your grandparents ask. We, we've already added two. 
and maybe almost three, technically. It's like official declaration one, official declaration two, and now proclamation on the family, yeah. technically speaking, is considered it, to be scripture. It's it certainly, it certainly, it's being reiterated as, as, as uh, the, you know, proclamation of the family, proclamation of the restoration, living Christ, all these proclamations, but they haven't yet been added to the doctrine and covenants, right? So whenever the prophets speak, that's, that's scripture to us, but, but we, we have multiple things that have been added to. And, and I think that it, like I said, it, no one's grandparent would be saying, well, I don't know if we would add anything to the doctrine and covenants because in point of fact, doctrine and covenants section 137 and 138 aren't added until 1981. So there actually have been uh, sections that aren't official declarations added. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, just in general uh, that, and and then maybe give you some examples of revelations that weren't added. So in the early days of the church, um, when Joseph Smith receives a revelation, in order for there to be written down, of course, you have to have some kind of scribe. I don't know how many revelations Joseph Smith might have received before the revelation started to be written down. I mean, in, in many ways, you could talk, you could call the angel Moroni appearing to Joseph part of a revelation. You you could you could say the first vision is a revelation. I mean, but we're talking about written revelations. The first that we have is actually Doctrine and Covenants section three. Um, this is from 1828, and it's the revelation that is chastising. Joseph Smith and Martin Harris for the loss of the 116 pages. And if it was me, I would not include that personally. Right. Like, well, yeah, if it was, if it was it, me. I'd be like, no, we're just going to make sense. We're just going to yeah. excise that one out. Like, oh, look, here's one saying that I did a good job. Um, but yeah, it it is certainly the case that Joseph is he 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 receives it in this very odd way. In fact, I don't even know exactly how it got written down because Joseph's walking out in his field. And an angel appears to him and hands him uh, the seer stones. And Joseph proceeds to receive Doctrine and Covenants section three from the seer stone. So I'm guessing he's goes and gets a pen and paper and starts writing it down himself um, as his own scribe. Later on, Joseph will always have a scribe with him in pretty close proximity. And so a lot of times what will happen is he will be the one to uh, dictate the revelation or read the words off the seer stone if that's how it's coming while someone else writes it down. So re- revelations are going to be received multiple different ways, right? So this one, obviously an angel's involved, Joseph's using seer stones. Um, there are other revelations that are going to be received without the use of seer stones, that they're going to be, uh, you know, Joseph through inspiration, uh, you know, is, is going to pray and ask the question and then begin to dictate without looking at a seer stone or without an angel involved. There are other revelations that are going to be visions that Joseph has that they dictate at the time. Like we talked about with Doctrine and Covenants section 76, that they see this vision and then while in the vision, we write it down, you know, so that they can, they can cover what, what, what it is that they're seeing. So the, the, there are various different ways that they are received, um, and and the these get recorded. And at first, they're simply circulating around as these single, you know, loose sheets of paper. And so, if you imagine in the early church, you know, Joseph Smith receives, you know, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, you know, section eighteen that's talking about the eventual calling of twelve uh, apostles in the church. Well. How would you have any access to that if you're just an average member of the church, you know, living in in Colesville? Well, the only way you'd have access to it is someone who got a copy of it from Joseph Smith copied that copy, and then they have a copy. Um, and and so once John Whitmer is called to be uh, the church historian, essentially, he is going to start collecting many of these loose circulating revelations into something that's called the Book of Commandments and Revelations. This it's sounds just, an awful lot like the Bible and how that was it's, assembled. It's, yeah. It is. It actually is very similar, but with a time span that's so much smaller. You know, as Jonathan's pointing out, I mean, the letters of Paul are circulating all throughout the Mediterranean world for well over 100, 150 years before there's any attempt to try to collect these together. And that actually led to a lot of problems, right? Because here's... Uh, which one's the original? Yeah, Well, yeah, yeah. Which is more original? But then also, 
here's someone claiming that this is, oh, here's the, the acts of Paul and Thecla. Well, is, is that really from Paul? Is this really, is this really the Paul's acts? I mean, it sounds awesome. There's a bunch of miracles in there. There's a man eating seal at one point. I mean, it, you want it to be true, you know? Um, but, but how do we determine who the author really is? So that's one of the problems of, of historicity that, that new Testament scholars especially have to deal with because they, they, there were so many people claiming to have these original sources. Latter-day Saints don't have to deal with that as much in this early period because these revelations are not circulating for years and years and years before they are more codified. However, I will tell you, there are multiple revelations, especially ones that people really liked, that we have dozens of early manuscript copies for. And not always does it seem that the earliest one is in this collected book. So when I say the Book of Commandments and Revelations, what it is is this giant book, a very large book, ledger book, that John Whitmer is going to start copying all of the revelations that they have a record of into that book. And that's going to kind of serve as the official revelation book. It's going to serve as the book of where the, this is where the, uh, you know, this is where the official version is because whenever you make a copy of anything, you are going to make a mistake. Uh, even today we, we are so much more highly literate than anyone who lived before us basically as a society and even your very highly literate state, you, you can do this as an example. You can go take uh, go take a, the Gospel of Luke, go take you know chapter five of the Gospel of Luke, and attempt to copy it exactly freehand onto paper, exactly what you're reading. I mean every comma, every semicolon, every verse break, copy it exactly. Even when you know that's what you're trying to do, evidence suggests you'll make at least two or three errors. They might be minor. They might be large. They might be repeating a word twice. They might be leaving a word out. Um, so, and commas are really important. Yeah. Well, commas, I mean, that's the, that's the main thing, but, but the point is that you wouldn't have the exact same manuscript. So it, it is kind of important that they, they take some of these early manuscripts and they begin to kind of codify them by recording them into this larger book of commandments and revelations that is with Joseph. So it's kind of where, where these revelations are going to be collected. But again, that being said, you take a, a revelation like Doctrine and Covenants section 89, it's widely circulated. There are lots of people who have their own personal copy of it. And they are not all exactly the same. Some have uh, words that are missing. Some have additional words because in some ways it's kind of like the, the telephone game that you play at a little kid's party because there's always going to be an error that creeps into a copy. And that error will then not only be perpetuated by someone who copies it, but they will introduce their own errors. And so there's always going to be minor ones. So it was good to, to early on start to try to codify what it is. Now, Latter-day Saints don't have the same problem that Christians do in the sense uh, theologically when it comes to the inerrancy of the biblical word. It's, it's difficult for many Christians to deal with you know, what are perceived to be errors in the biblical manuscript because, well, this is the inerrant word of God. There aren't any errors. There can't be errors. So if you find a manuscript that has different words in it, even if it's earlier, well, then it's wrong because this is the Bible. For Latter-day Saints, of course, we believe that that God has prophets today and they continue to receive revelation. And so the prophets can, can determine what it is that people um, need to know about the revelations. And even Joseph himself is going to edit his revelations. He's going to go back to revelations he's received and add information to them and change information in them. And that was, that was pretty standard for Joseph because for Joseph, the point was helping you understand God's will for you. It was not to make sure that every single word was exactly the same forever. I'm going to add into this, like, so my experience, I write computer software and I, when I receive this idea in my head, when I'm, when I'm formulating something, I'm like, okay, here's what I'm trying to achieve. Here's the meaning of it. I'm trying to express that meaning in code. I'm trying to express it in, a, in, in software. 
and it takes me a little bit to kind of like move things around and and so forth to get the meaning right. It's about that rather than the actual the the, the code in this case is an expression of the meaning um, and and not the meaning unto itself. Yeah, and and I think the way Joseph sees scripture is that it it can be altered by continuing revelation. I mean, it's it's a stunning thing for, and we talked about this a little bit, but it's a stunning thing for Latter-day Saints sometimes to learn that Joseph Smith edited the Book of Mormon. That, you know, we always talk about, you know, well, that he, you know, he dictated the whole thing and he didn't make any mistakes and they didn't make any edits. Well, not to the original manuscript, but in 1837, Joseph is going to make all kinds of changes to the Book of Mormon text. Now, it's primarily things to make it read more clearly, taking out a bunch of and it came to passes, uh, um, changing a bunch of halves to has, but also he actually makes some changes for clarity's sake. Some changes where it, you know, it used to say Lord, and now he's going to change it to say God so that you know who's being discussed in there. So uh, Joseph is willing to make edits and amendations. And so that's important to understand as we talk about this. Well, we have these manuscript revelations, but as more and more members of the church join the church, you can understand the frustration that you might have that the only way you have access to these words of God delivered through a modern day prophet is if you just so happen to come across a circulating copy of that particular revelation because there is no published version of it. Now, once the church starts its newspaper uh, in, uh, in, in Missouri, well, then they're going to start publishing some. So, so in, in 1831, you're going to start getting some published um, revelations. You're actually going to start getting some published revelations uh, in uh, Ohio by antagonists of the church who will, uh, Eber Howe, uh, our antagonist we talked about uh, in the last couple podcasts, he actually will brag about the fact that they steal a copy of DNC 20 from Martin Harris and surreptitiously publish it in his newspaper. He's very proud of this, uh, this fact that they stole this revelation because Martin Harris wanted to keep it secret and sacred, and instead Eberhow publishes it in his newspaper. I mean, again, hard to believe that a, a, a newspaper person would deliberately publish something that was sacred that they didn't want published in order to get more readers. But in this world that Eberhow lived in, he did it. Um, but still, that's, that's not wide circulation. Even when things are being published in a newspaper, well, then I guess if I'm lucky to have been a member and a subscriber to the church newspaper when that was published, I guess I now have a copy of it. But what I really need is a collection of the revelations that, like the Bible and the Book of Mormon, I can have in one book ready for me to access. So I don't have to go seek out and find a copy of of this revelation on the word of wisdom. I, oh, here it is right here in the book. So by 1831, they're already making plans to publish the revelations in, in a collection. They begin work on this. Um, uh, uh, but the first thing you have to do is you have to select which revelations are you going to include? A committee is formed because it's, it's still the church. So there's always a committee. They form a committee and they um, they begin to go through the revelations to try to determine which one should be published. So one of the surprising things that you're probably already thinking about, well, why don't you just publish all of them? Well, um, you know, that I can see why I would want that now, but they are thinking of more focused. Joseph's received a lot of revelations. What are the ones that people have to have? Their plan is to publish something called the Book of Commandments. In fact, it's called A Book of Commandments for the Government of the Church of Christ. That's the title of it. Um, and they begin working on that in, in Missouri, and they are nearly done printing it when the mob violence in Missouri in 1833 not only is going to drive the Latter-day Saints out of Jackson County, but in point of fact, destroy the print shop and the 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 press, they throw the the type into the street and those pages are also all thrown out. Um, this is where the, uh, the story of, uh, the Rollins girls, where you've probably heard that they tell the story later that they went and grabbed some of the sheets and ran off into the cornfield and people chased after them. 
They clearly aren't the only ones who saved any pages. There were uh, other people who grabbed some of the pages as well. But I what, have a question about that. Yeah, actually. go ahead. So do we have any awareness of like, obviously these are copies. Do we have an awareness of like things that, that were, have been completely lost as a result of that? Like here's revelations that we once knew about that are just completely gone. So with the Book of Commandments, no, in the sense that all of these that they are using in the Book of Commandments are all in the manuscript Book of Commandments and Revelations. So the, that big book, so I know, I mean, we really should have named these books something else so that it was a lot easier for you to understand. But So like the large plates of Nephi and the small yeah, plates exactly. of Nephi. Just we'll make just, it really clear. Let's just call yeah. them both the plates of Nephi. Oh, oh, no, no, you don't understand. That one's from the plates of Nephi. Oh, like, oh, okay. so like, Thank oh, the you. Book of Mormon. No, the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah, the, the, book, Mormon, the, bo- the Mormon Book of Mormon in, in the Book, the book yeah, of Mormon. Okay. But, but yeah, so the large manuscript, which is the, the book, the book that has all the copies of the revelations in it is called the Book of Commandments and Revelations. When they decide to print some, most of those revelations, they decide to print it in a book called the Book of Commandments or Book of Commandments. Well, so they don't lose any of the manuscript of the, the, the revelations. This isn't like the 116 pages where now they're just gone and we can never print them again. What they do lose is this enormous amount of time and expense. And, and they had planned on print, printing 5,000 copies of this. I mean, and they are nearly done, meaning there are thousands of pages that are already printed, already drying, already stacked, already ready to go once they finish the final gathering of of the book to bind it together, cut the pages, and and get it out. And instead, it's all destroyed. And so if you're wondering, it actually makes... um, there are very, there are very, very, very few copies of the Book of Commandments. I think we're somewhere around fourteen, fifteen. Uh, occasionally, a collector says that they will find another one. There's fourteen to fifteen total copies of that book. Period. Floating. Okay, so now yeah. here's the next question. So, yeah. if the if the mm, the original manuscripts still exist, of course, mm. then the pages themselves were merely a replica of exactly. that, and so. I, I'm not trying to belittle their sacrifice. They went and, you know, they're being hunted and so forth. Like my real question there is like, okay, so w- what did they actually save? Then, yeah. Well, you know? so what they did save is that, especially for them, I mean, and that's how she tells the story. I mean, the, the uh, you know, uh, the Rollins the, uh, sisters that they take it and David Whitmer binds up that copy for them so that they have their own copy of the Got revelations. It. And what that means is for two years, they have something that no one else has. That's a copy of all the, a printed copy of the revelations of Joseph Smith that they were trying to publish. Um, but yeah, you're right. They don't lose the ability to ever print those revelations again. And in fact, almost immediately after it becomes clear that you won't be printing anything in Zion anymore, they're going to undertake a new plan to print what will be their next attempt. So so the first time any of these revelations are printed in a book is, you know, the Book of Commandments, but because they never actually finished printing it, the only copies that exist are copies that were essentially pieced together from the pages that were tossed out. All the images we have, I mean, all the, the copies we know of are essentially bound together by people themselves. So like Oliver Cowdery's is, is bound together with twine going through it and Wilfred Woodruff's is bound together that same way. It's, it's the most valuable artifact. I mean, at least one of the most. I think it's the most valuable printed. So far. Uh, yeah, right. Until we, well, most valuable printed. The most valuable printed book in Latter-day Saint uh, history because, you know, they're all worth more than a, a million dollars if you find them. They, they are early and they are rare. I mean, you can find a really good copy of, of an 1830 Book of Mormon you know, it could be worth, you know, maybe two or $300,000, depending on how good a condition it's in. But a book of commandments is worth a million dollars to start with. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it, they are so rare and that doesn't really help the problem. The whole point of trying to publish all of the revelations is to get these revelations in the hands of Latter-day Saints. Well, they aren't in the hands of any Latter-day Saints if, you know, six people are running around with copies of it. My guess is there's probably around 100 copies that were salvaged. But in any case, that's not going to help the thousands and then tens of thousands of saints. 
So they they make the plan to form another committee. Uh, and uh, wait, wait, who decides? Does the first committee decide to create another committee? Is that no? How it works? I okay. think Joseph decides okay. to form another committee. They vote on it, um, and they're going to create now the second attempt to publish these, which is the one that's far more familiar to you, and that's the Doctrine and Covenants. Now. The, the original uh, name of the Doctrine and Covenants, if I were to you know, read you the, the, the title page, it's the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Now notice, you're, well, you're missing part of our name there. Well, that's what the church was called in 1835. It was called the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So we were the Church of Christ uh, when we were first organized. Uh, and then it's changed to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And then in 1838, it's changed to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's this sounds like a future podcast, just that oh, alone. Yeah, okay. We'll talk about the name of the church in a future podcast. So stay tuned. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that and maybe townships some more. I think we liked townships before, so we'll talk about that some more. At any rate, here's the name. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants of, of the Church of the Latter-day Saints carefully selected from the revelations of God. So one thing that would be very apparent to you if you were a Latter-day Saint in 1835 when that book is published is that this isn't all of the revelations of Joseph Smith. A lot of my students today, when we talk about the Doctrine and Covenants, their assumption, and it look, it's a sound assumption. It, it's a, the same assumption that I had. Of course, all of Joseph Smith's revelations are in the Doctrine and Covenants. Why wouldn't they be? And, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, here's a long lost one that they didn't have a copy of to put in, but they actually have copies of many revelations that they, they have access to that for one reason or another, they decide not to include in the Doctrine and Covenants. And do you have any context on some of the rationale or reasoning behind that? Unfortunately, we don't like have pri- hard like privacy laws, yeah, anything like that, we, GDPR? Yeah, yeah, they're really worried about the millennial copyright, but uh, the digital millennial copyright. But they're, they're real, the, real, the real problem is we don't have a ton of reasons why. In, in the Book of Commandments and Revelations, there will often be a notation that's written on those revelations saying not to be printed. So here's a revelation that was acted on as a revelation, was received as a revelation. They absolutely consider it a revelation, but they make the determination, well, let's not print this one. But they don't provide any notes as to why they're including this one or not including this one. Now, there is a lot of commentary on some things that do get included that later people are saying, why was that included? Most particularly... um, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants had a statement on marriage in it. And it was essentially a statement that, you know, we follow the laws of the land and we don't, you know, we don't practice polygamy. You can see why that statement on marriage might later become a problem, given the fact that we are, well, we're later going to practice polygamy. Another podcast, that'll be like 97 podcasts. So that one, we're going to push that one off. But um, uh, that statement on marriage, Brigham Young actually is, really has a problem with it. He uh, he will denounce it multiple times saying that it was Oliver Cowdery who put that in and he put it in against the wishes of Joseph, that that he showed it to Joseph and that Joseph was like, you know, why, why would we put this in there? And, 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 and Oliver says, unless you tell me I can't put it in, I'm, I'm putting it in. And Joseph says, okay. And so they, they put it in. I don't know if that's the case at all. That's, that's what Brigham Young is saying later. Um, but there, there, you can tell there's some debates about the things that make it in and the things that don't. So I thought I'd give you a few examples of some of the things that don't. Um, one of the earliest revelations that doesn't make it in to either uh, the Book of Commandments or uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, so this wasn't printed in either one, is an 1830 revelation. It's even given a notation as a commandment. Uh, in, in the Book of Commandments and Revelations, it's called uh, the 23rd commandment. Um, we Hold we, on, I'm missing like a bunch. So there's 10, and then there's like all these <laughs> other ones, and this is number <laughs> right, 23. Right, it's just they're all don't commit adultery after 10. It's just God just keeps having to say it. Stop committing adultery, stop committing adultery, I think. Yeah, it's just over and over again. Um, but... Um, <laughs> This revelation is interesting because it's a revelation to Joseph, Oliver Cowdery, 
Hiram Page. So remember Hiram Page with our, our Searstone issue that we talked about earlier in an earlier podcast. Um, and also Josiah Stoll. I mean, Josiah Stoll. I mean, he's the person that Joseph Smith is is hired by to 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 dig for treasure uh, in 1827. That's how he meets Emma. Is working for Josiah Stoll, and also Joseph Knight Senior. Okay, so here's some important folks in early Latter Day Saint history who you would read the Doctrine and Covenants and you would say, oh there aren't any revelations directed to Hiram Page. Yeah, he got, he got you know, blasted by uh, Oliver Cowdery as a consequence of Doctrine and Covenants section 28 because he says, go and take Hiram Page between him and thee alone and, and tell him that the things that he's written from that stone are not of me, but Satan deceiveth him. But there isn't a revelation directly to Hiram Page. Well, yeah, actually there is a revelation directly to Hiram Page. And why does that matter? Why, why would I care? Well, Historically speaking, what does it mean? To me, it means that Hiram Page is a much more prominent member of the early church than I would generally consider him to be. Why don't I consider him to be? Because he's not a part of any of these revelations when Joseph Smith is organizing things, except actually he is. Um, this revelation is sometimes called the Canadian copyright revelation. I knew uh, there was a copyright thing in this. Ah, I see you. I, I about said it there, but I didn't want to give it away. <laughs> I have to keep some Easter eggs for later. Um, but um, this revelation, uh, I'm just going to read it. It's very short, so I'll just read uh, read it. Um, well, I guess it's not very short. It's a little short, but this whole podcast is super long. So if you're not asleep driving your car now, you will be. Uh, behold, I am the uh, I, the Lord, am God. I created heavens and earth and all things that in them is. Wherefore they are mine, and I sway my scepter over all the earth. And ye are in my hands to will and do what I to do that I can do. Uh, sorry, uh, and and ye are in my hands. You need like a to, more like divine voice. You know? I, okay, probably. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, a lot deeper and try to sound. I'm not exactly sure how God sounds. He hasn't spoken to me, but um, ye are in my hands to will and to do that I can deliver you out of every difficulty and affliction according to your faith and diligence and uprightness before me. And I have covenanted with my servant that earth nor hell combined against him shall not take the blessing out of his hands, which I have prepared for him, if he walketh uprightly before me. Neither the spiritual nor the temporal blessing. That's pretty cool, actually, right? Here's some doctrine of the promise that Joseph Smith is given that isn't a part of our doctrine and covenants today. And it's not because God didn't say it. God did say it. It was recorded. It's considered a commandment. It just wasn't one of the ones that they decided to print. The revelation goes on to tell them to uh, that they can go to Kingston, uh, Canada, and that they can try to sell uh, the, the copyright there in order uh, for... Uh, so they can make money selling the book in Canada as well. Because they have a copyright for the United States. As you might imagine, copyright is, it's pretty readily violated today. Imagine what it was like then when there was essentially no enforcement arm at all. There wasn't even the ability to have an enforcement arm. And so it was rarely enforced in the United States. International copyright was... It was the Wild West of anything you could get a hold of, you would just copy. And so um, their plan is, well, people are going to get a hold of the Book of Mormon, and they're going to start reprinting it illegally in Canada anyway. I mean, we already have a bunch of newspapers reprinting it illegally, portions of it. I mean, it. I guess that would be a good thing if they like if they were like faithful to the exact text, right? And, and like, how can hey, you know it's that? Free. It's free. Yep, oh, here's yep. the thing. But yeah, I guess you'd have to like read the whole thing to make and sure. And how would you know that they keep it? And, and so... Their plan is to go and and sell, you know, get a copyright and then and try to sell it in order to that way we have it regulated. That way we're getting some kind of funds for it that we can then use to to assist uh, in the forming of the church. This is received in early 1830. We don't know when. It seems to be in January. So it seems. So remember, the church isn't organized until April. The Book of Mormon isn't done printing until March. So before they're done printing the Book of Mormon, this revelation is given. Um, I'm going to pull out just a couple of other things in there that are pretty, uh, that are uh, pretty interesting. Um, uh, let's see here. 
Wherefore, be diligent in securing the copyright of my of my servant work upon all the face of the earth, of which is known by you unto my servant Joseph, unto him, whom he willeth, according as I shall command him, that the faithful and the righteous may retain the temporal blessings as well as the spiritual, and also that my work be not destroyed by the workers of iniquity to their own destruction and damnation when they are fully ripe. And now, behold, I say unto you that I have covenanted, and it pleaseth me that Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Knight, Hiram Page, and Josiah Stoll shall do my work in this thing, yea, even in the securing the copyright. They shall do it with an eye single to my glory, that it be the means of bringing souls unto me, salvation through my only begotten. Um, the, the, The latter portion is going to also give a little bit of kind of cool again teaching and prophecy I, i'm just thinking i know a lot of copyright attorneys that would just love oh, this yeah, yeah. I, like I, this is this is like a spiritual this, this principle is their here. revelation yeah. you really need to you need to get a copy of this and give this to them. this is for you for christmas you can put it up on the wall like your family proclamation um he says uh uh If the people harden not their hearts against the enticings of my spirit and my word, for behold, it lieth in themselves to their condemnation uh, or to their salvation. Behold, my way is before you and the means I will prepare and the blessing I hold in mine own hand. And if you are faithful, I will pour out upon you even as much as you are able to bear. Thus it shall be. Behold, I am the Father, and it is through mine only begotten, which is Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Amen. That, that last part's pretty awesome. I mean, you could see that being quoted in a general conference talk. You know, I mean, it, the, the, the Lord is giving him this blessing that he will pour it out even as much as you're able to bear. I know we have that in other revelations, later revelations, but here you have it in this early revelation. Here's another example of one that doesn't make the grade. I mean, I hate to say it that way because there is no evidence that the revelations that aren't included are considered in any way less or in any way, um, you know, not from God. In fact, they absolutely act on them. They, they treat them. They call them commandments. They're in the book of commandments. They reference them in other commandments, but it doesn't get printed. So it doesn't get known. This is a revelation. This next one I want to talk about is a revelation from 1831. So fast forward, the church has already moved now to Kirtland. And one of the problems they have is all the New York saints are moving from New York because God has commanded them to with DNC 37 and 38. They're all moving and arriving in Ohio. And one of the problems is they all left their land behind them. They, 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 they got almost nothing for the land that they sold. Most of them just left it. And, and so they, they go from being well-off people to having nothing as they arrive in Ohio. So one of the key problems in Ohio is where are these people going to live? Well, Frederick G. Williams is going to give up his farm to the church. Now, how he has his farm is he, he traded a farm that he had outside of town um, with a farm that's right there in the center of Kirtland. Well, the farm that's outside of town was not worth quite as much as the one that's in the center of town in Kirtland, as you might imagine. It also doesn't have as many outbuildings on it and you know houses that are built on it. And so even though they make this trade, Frederick G. Williams still owes a balance on that farm. Well, as various Latter-day Saints arrive and begin covenanting and, and consecrating their resources to the church, apparently one of the people who makes that covenant is Ezra Thayer. Ezra Thayer is from New York. He's one of the New York Saints that, that comes and joins in Ohio. And he apparently pays $100 towards the outstanding balance on Frederick G. Williams Farm. Again, $100 doesn't sound like very much. I mean, actually still does kind of sound like a lot, but... but Remember your average American. It depends on if you're buying gas or not. Yeah, right. Yeah, hundred dollars won't even get you half a tank if you're driving a Land Rover. But um, uh, the hundred dollars to them is roughly a third of someone's annual income. So it, it just put that into your terms. It, however much money you make, whoever you are listening to this, imagine if a third of the money you make every year you paid to redeem this this the note on this farm. Well, that's what Ezra Thayer does. And this revelation is given because what happens 
is apparently the person that Frederick G. Williams swapped farms with. Well, he is a very vigorous Campbellite. He is a member of the Disciples of Christ, and he is fine swapping farms with Frederick G. Williams when he's just another businessman in Ohio. But when it becomes the the settling ground for thousands of Latter-day Saints, or hundreds, he tries to essentially prevent Latter-day Saints from settling on the farm by saying, well, you haven't paid me all for it yet. Which, of course, that, that's not the case. They'd already swapped farms and there was already an agreement to continue to make payments. But this guy apparently said, no, no, I'm not going to let you, you Mormons settle here. And so this revelation is given in response to it. So it's going to seem kind of weird. I gave a lot of background, but this is that revelation. It's given to Ezra Thayer and Joseph Smith Jr. This is, this is uh, John Whitmer writing what it's about. Concerning a farm. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the heading that's given. It's concerning a farm. Hearken unto my words, and behold, I will make known unto you what you shall do, as it be pleasing unto me. For verily I say unto you, it must needs be that ye let the bargain stand that ye have made between that you have made concerning these farms, until it be so fulfilled. Behold, ye are holden for the one, so likewise thine adversary is holden for the other. Wherefore, it must needs be that ye pay no more money for the present time, until the contract be fulfilled. And let my servant Joseph and his family go into the house after thine adversary is gone and let my servant Ezra board with him and let all the brethren immediately assemble together and put up a house for my servant Ezra. This is Ezra there for my servant Ezra and let my servants Frederick G. Williams family remain and let the house be repaired and their wants be supplied. And when my servant Frederick returns from the West, behold, he taketh his family to the West let that which belongeth to my servant Frederick be secured unto him by deed or bond. And thus he willeth that the brethren reap the good thereof. And let my servant Joseph, this is Joseph Smith Sr., govern the things of the farm and provide for the families and let him have help inasmuch as he standeth in need. Let my servant Ezra humbleth himself, and at the conference meeting he shall be ordained unto power from on high. And he shall go from thence, if he be obedient unto my commandments, and proclaim my gospel unto the western regions with my servants that must go forth even unto the borders of the Lamanites. For behold, I have great work for them to do, and it shall be given unto you to know what ye shall do at the conference meeting, even so. Amen. So there's a ton of stuff in here. Some cool uh, things about you know, the adversary trying to stop them. Apparently this guy refuses to even move out of the house. And once he moves out, the plan is to move Joseph's family in. Ezra Thayer is already kind of showing a little bit of recalcitrance, some problems. He appears to humble himself because he is uh, one of the people that is ordained to the high priesthood at the June 3rd uh, through 7th conference that happens. But the fact that he has spent money on this land is one of the things that's going to actually cause a problem with Doctrine and Covenants section 54 through 56, where Ezra Thayer refuses to go on his mission without a division being made of this land because he paid money into it. So he's like, oh, well, look, I paid a hundred dollars into this. I want a deed to my hundred dollars worth of the land that I paid for. You can't send me on a mission and leave me with nothing. Uh, he's told in those revelations, that's not how this works, Ezra. Uh, you're consecrating to the Lord and you don't, uh, you're not consecrating so you can get a, a, a title to that land. Uh, there's a second part of this revelation too that's a question and answer that again is not in the Doctrine and Covenants. What shall the brethren do with their money? Ye shall seek, ye, ye shall go forth and seek diligently among the brethren and obtain lands and save the money that it may be consecrated to the purchase of lands in the West for an everlasting inheritance. There's a notation on this that it's to the Palmyra church. So so the brethren of the church that are coming from Palmyra, the men and women that are coming who did have some property, what are they supposed to do with their money? First, they're supposed to obtain lands there in Ohio for people to, to, to settle on. Second, they're to save whatever money they can save to buy lands in Zion, to buy lands in Missouri where they believe the land of Zion is going to be. They don't know yet where the land of Zion is going to be, but Somewhere in the West, they're told. They're told somewhere in the West is where that land of signs is going to be. 
So you can you can see some pretty cool things. Obviously, some of them are more historical than theological, but there are some pretty interesting promises that are made in these revelations that you don't readily have access to. Um, so the last one that I want to cover is one that uh, if you were to ask me, it, you know, if they were to add one of these revelations to the Doctrine and Covenants, which one would they add? If you were to ask me, this would actually be the one that I would think would be most readily added. Um, the uh, the revelation is received on the 12th of January of 1838. Why, why this revelation? Well, this revelation is uh, one that, now obviously it, it couldn't have been included in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants because 1838, for those of you keeping score, is after 1835. Um, but couldn't you receive a revelation on receiving a revelation? Yeah. So had you yeah. received a revelation that you'd eventually receive a revelation, then it could be in there. Um, but, but even though it, it's there, it's not included in the 1844 doctrine and covenants. It's not included in the 1876 doctrine. And, covenants, and in fact, it's not in, it's not in your doctrine and covenants now, again, not because it, it's not considered a revelation. And in fact, not only is it a revelation, it's the revelation that commands Joseph and the other members of the church to leave Ohio. Ohio is the headquarters of the church. Why is Joseph in far West when the Mormon war breaks out in Missouri? He's there because this revelation told him to leave Kirtland behind. They've, they've had this increasing persecution, the failure of the Kirtland safety society, all kinds of apostasy, all kinds of lawsuits, all kinds of threats against them. And this revelation, it, it tells them what they are to do. There's actually a series of revelations, none of them in the Doctrine and Covenants from this 12th of January. But here is the one that, that I wanted to at least read part of. Thus saith the Lord, let the presidency of my church take their families as soon as is practicable and a door is open for them and move on to the West as fast as the way is made plain before their faces. And let their hearts be comforted. Verily I say unto you, the time has come that your labors are finished in this place for a season. Therefore arise and get yourselves on to a land which I shall show unto you, even a land flowing with milk and honey. We're talking about Missouri, right? Yeah, it's hard to believe. But yes, they are talking about Missouri um, uh, This uh, uh, before air conditioning even. Uh, but yeah, they're talking about Zion, that they're going to go to that land. Or at least that's how they would have interpreted it at the time. It doesn't specifically say Missouri. Maybe it's meaning something else in the future. But this is pretty cool here, right? So Joseph has, 1838 is, is a rough time for Joseph. Late 1837 and early 1838 is, I mean, it's not going to get any better because by the end of 1838, he's going to be in Liberty jail. So, I mean, it, it, this is a, a rough time all the way around, but he has seen the apostasy and the coming apostasy of the three witnesses of the church. They haven't all been excommunicated yet, but they are, they are certainly on the road. You have had multiple apostles like uh, John Boynton, uh, Lyman and Luke Johnson, apostatized from the church over the failure of the Kirtland Safety Society. So this is this is a rough time. And what does the Lord tell him? He says um, that he's going to go to a land. I'll show you full of milk and honey. Tells Joseph, you are clean from the blood of this people. And woe unto those who have become your enemies, who have professed my name, saith the Lord, for their judgment lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. Let all your faithful friends arise with their families also and get out of this place and gather themselves together unto Zion and be at peace among yourselves, O ye inhabitants of Zion, or there shall be no safety for you. So they're, they're kind of given this promise on the basis of you need to, to be at peace one with another. No more internal dissensions, which we know is rife. Again, hard to believe there was a time in the church when people had divisions with one another inside the church. Uh, everyone living today is saying that wouldn't possibly ever happen. Um, but something that the Lord specifically counsels them against here. It's a short revelation. It's a beautiful revelation. And it's an essential revelation in explaining why Joseph and the whole church leaves Kirtland. They, they don't just leave because, oh, things are bad now. We, we don't want to put up with it anymore. We're going to leave. They leave because God commands them to leave. And in some cases, very tragically. Amanda Barnes-Smith and her family, for instance, 
are not from Missouri. They are from uh, Ohio. They are living there in the Kirtland area and they follow that revelation. And that's the reason why they are passing through Hans Mill on their way to far west tragically the same day as the Hans Mill massacre takes place and her husband and her uh, one son are, are murdered and her other son is wounded and only miraculously survives. So to me, this revelation, you know, it, it, obviously if you're asking me, I'd, I'd like every Joseph Smith revelation to eventually be in the doctrine and covenants. Um, but it, this one in particular, I, I think would really help us understand why the members were moving to far West when they were. And also, um, it, it would, it would help us understand why it is that Joseph leaves when he does. I mean, that, so both the members and for the presidency, it's a revelation from God. They're acting on that revelation from God. And yet at the same time, um, it's, it's not, um, something that ever gets printed. It's never included in any of the other iterations of the doctrine and covenants. So let me just, uh, close off this, uh, uh, obviously this is part one of our podcast by talking about the, the title of the book itself, the, the 1835 doctrine and covenants. It, it's, it has a different name than the book of commandments. I mean, they could have just, you know, republished the book of commandments. Obviously they're going to include a lot more revelations because between 1833 and 1835, Joseph receives dozens of more revelations. They, they, they expand greatly the number of revelations, but one of the things that they add to the doctrine and covenants that they weren't going to add to the book of commandments is something that's called the lectures on faith. When Joseph describes the, the doctrine and covenants, he says the first part of the book will be found to contain a series of lectures as delivered before a theological place, uh, a theological class in this place. And in consequence of their embracing the important doctrine of salvation, we have arranged them into the following work. Now you have probably all throughout your life, always seen the lectures on faith seen as authored by Joseph Smith. That that's what you'll see it as. Oh, the lectures on faith by Joseph Smith. The reason why is the, on the title page of the doctrine and covenants, it is the revelations of God as compiled by Joseph Smith, Jr., Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams. They're the committee um, of, of those elders that put, put the book together. Well, so when someone lists off the lectures on faith, Joseph Smith is the first named author, obviously, right? Or, or compiler. But most historians don't actually believe that Joseph Smith was the, the author of the lectures on faith. It's, it's actually quite different writing than Joseph's normal writing. And, and so many people think that it's either, you know, uh, Sidney Rigdon, who is the author of them, or possibly, um, even other people like, like W.W. Phelps or something like that. But primarily I think most people think it's Sidney Rigdon. In any case, this was seen as separate from the revelations with the revelations they call, uh, the revelations they use various terms for them. They call them commandments is what they actually call them most. They call them commandments. They also call them revelations. Um, and they also call them covenants. It's a very interesting that they call the revelations themselves covenants. And I think especially because in our modern Latter-day Saint world, we often use the word covenant. And when we use it, we say, well, a covenant's a two-way promise. It, it, it means we have to do something on our part. And it's actually pretty apt for the way that Latter-day Saints use the revelations in Joseph Smith's time. These revelations are not things that you debate about in, uh, in Sunday school. They are commandments to action. They are, God is giving you this and now you go do this, that, that you, it requires action on your part. And so <clears throat> I think, um, that's the reason why the the term covenants is included in there. Now, I I uh, want to tell you a story, uh, but I'm going to leave it for next week. This is a little bit of a teaser. I'm going to tell you a story of of, of the doctrine and covenants um, that is a relates to that title of it. But that first part of the doctrine and covenants, the doctrine part, or at least what the doctrine part meant in the title of it originally is actually a reference to the lectures on faith 
the covenants part is a as a reference to all the revelations that are still in the doctrine and covenants. You might be saying, well, wait a minute. The lectures on faith aren't in my doctrine and covenants right now. That's exactly what we're going to talk about next time. We're going to talk about the changes that are made to the doctrine and covenants, the revelations that are added, and the things that are taken out over the course of time, one of them being the lectures on faith. So thank you very much for joining us for this podcast, and make sure you catch part two because we're going to answer some of those questions. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.